Ideas matter. Ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and welcome to Dialogue. The issue of climate change has once again taken the headlines as China and the U.S. issued a joint statement last week to further cooperate on tackling climate change and to make greater efforts to bolster green energy. Earlier, I spoke with Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados, on the sidelines of the 6th Paris Peace Forum, who is calling on all countries to help save the planet and make the world a better and more hospitable place. And in the second half of our program, I will also show our exclusive interview in Paris with Ernesto Ottoni, Assistant Director General for Culture of UNESCO. That's our topic. I'm Xu Qingdo. Welcome to Dialogue, Prime Minister. You know, I know like you are one of the high-profile advocates against climate change, if not the most high-profile you know, champion against climate change. Tell us, you know, where are we now in terms of the fight against climate change? We have made some progress. The question is, is it enough? And are we moving fast enough? We're not moving fast enough because in many instances what we're talking about are steps before we can succeed. Mm -hmm. We need capital, we need access to money, whether it is public money, private money, in order to develop the projects. And before we can develop the projects, once we have the money, we need to do feasibility studies because for those things that we want to do to adapt to a new climate, increasing um, sea levels, um, floods, etc., very often they require feasibility studies. So when you consider the life of a project, you realize that we are really not around the corner from where we need to be and therefore we need urgently to settle all of the financing and funding issues. Then we need to be able to set, settle the issue of access to products. Mm -hmm. um, as much as I want to be able to have electric vehicles, we don't have enough in our part of the world. As much as we want to be able to move to more photovoltaic farms, we don't have enough battery storage for grid stability. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the fact that there are not enough um, companies producing the different types of batteries that are needed. So there are real challenges at a granular level that cause us to wonder whether capacity is there to meet the commitments that we've made. Um, having said that, we are much further than we were 10 years ago. But that is no, that's, that, that doesn't help us because at the end of the day, we need to be in a position not just to have funding or have product, but to have them all executed so that all human beings can adapt in one sense to what, what the new temperatures are going to be, but still fight to contain the temperatures, mm -hmm. still fight to make sure that we do everything to mitigate and in particular do a pact to be able to bring down the methane emissions because that's the quickest way to keep us within the 1.5 or just there, thereabout. And, and, and we hope we can make it because it, it'll make the difference between whether countries can stay and exist in certain parts of the world or whether people will have to move and go to other regions. We see the difference right now, as I said, the first six months of this year, our rainfall average was 50% of what the 30 year average was. The last three months of this year, We've seen water and floods like we don't normally see and the ground is saturated, which affects farmers, it affects communities, it affects the flooding that's taken place. So we are really into what I call the season of superlatives. 
the hottest, the wettest, the driest, the coldest. Everything is breaking new temperatures. When I went to Beijing earlier this year, it was the hottest day in Beijing for 78 yes, years. Extreme weathers. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that is we're definitely seeing the change in patterns in the last two to three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is um, an idea, you know, some media called it um, radical idea, which is called the Bridgetown Initiative yep. and your prime, yep. you know, your government. Tell us more about that. What is the Bridgetown Initiative? Bridgetown Initiative is an attempt to make our financial institutions and our ability to access finance relevant to the times in which we live. Many of these institutions, the Bretton Woods institutions, were formed when our countries didn't even exist. Not only do we now exist, but we're facing literally serious times where we are being forced to choose between money spent for adaptation mm -hmm. and money spent for development. Money spent for mitigation, money spent to be able to boost our economic competitiveness. And that is a false construct. And in fact, when we met here in Paris, they took the elements of the Bridgetown Initiative and came up with a Paris Pact for People and Planet, which says that, look, you can't ask us to choose between the planet and income inequality or lack of development. And the Bridgetown Initiative basically is about, therefore, expanding access to money for countries, whether it is public money or private money, recognizing why is it that private money doesn't move to the global south? What are the reasons? Is it for an exchange risk? Is it unconscious bias? How can we get more capital flows to the global south in a way that does not disenfranchise the citizens of the global south? Um, so these things are front and center with the Bridgetown Initiative. We've seen some progress. We've seen the IMF, for example, establish a Resilience and Sustainability Trust, which provides long-term capital for the first time to middle-income vulnerable countries, 20-year money, with a 10 and a half year moratorium. Mm -hmm. We've seen the fund be successful in getting other countries to be able to help capitalize that resilience and sustainability trust, while also expanding the capital of the Poverty and Growth Trust so that low-income countries are not disadvantaged while we help middle-income countries who are vulnerable. And we also, in the Bridgetown Initiative, call for a just industrial strategy. I just spoke to you about the goods yeah. and the components necessary for us to move to net zero that we simply don't have access to because all of the production is concentrated in certain parts of the world and therefore the access is not there. And countries like mine, when we put in our orders, they say, oh, you're too small. We, we, we can't focus on you now. We focus on the big, on the big orders. Mm -hmm. you, know? you know, on the initiative, it's said that, that you know, for rich nations, their access to financing is easier, like one to four percent in terms of the interest rate. Exactly. But for developing countries, it could be like a fourteen percent. Look 14%, at Glasgow. Yeah. In Glasgow, we made the big announcement for the JetP projects in South Africa. Mm -hmm. It's not been able to get off the ground. Because the cost of capital is multiple times more expensive in South Africa than it would be in Europe or North America. And so, uh, in terms of that, you know, for the next step, and you're talking about the lack of products, the lack of financing, you also are calling for the reform of the global financial institutions. Yeah. You yeah. talked about the IMF. Well, well the reform is there, and, and that, I just pointed out what the IMF has done to address not just the um, symptoms, but the causes of the problem causes, yes. with the Resilience and Sustainability Trust. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen them now agree to appoint a new director from Africa, a third director, so that the voices of the world 
need to be more represented and we've seen the IMF take those decisions. Mm. I'm also hopeful that with the new leadership at the World Bank with AJ Banga that we'll begin to see the changes. When we were last in Paris he announced the use of debt pause clauses so that when a country is hit by a crisis that it can pause the payment of its debt for two years to give itself the fiscal space and the room to help the country rebuild, especially since there's a large percentage of underinsurance and uninsurance in countries now, simply because many of the risks are uninsurable and, and insurance companies may not be willing to go in, mm -hmm. as they've announced in um, California with underwriting risk for fire. Mm -hmm. So this is more and more going to be necessary, these debt pause clauses, to give countries a space to be able to concentrate on those who have lost um, homes and those whose families have lost members um, in the recovery after a crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the other thing we're calling for is longer term money at cheaper rates because we need to be able, as I said at the beginning, to concentrate not just on adaptation and mitigation for climate but on education, on healthcare, on fighting crime, on boosting recreational activity, on boosting economic competitiveness. These things all call for money. We need all of the countries of the world to help fight to save the planet. And we need all of the countries of the world to help make the world a better and more hospitable place for people. There can be nothing gained by war, there can be nothing gained by conflict, and there can be nothing gained by not working together. And whether you are at war or you are in conflict or you are not working together, we need to be able to have a course correction. Because if ever the world needed the majority of the countries and the majority of the people to stand up and to help save humanity and the planet, it is now. So I hope that President Xi and President Biden will come to an understanding as to how they can work together to be able to help save the planet and to create more development opportunities for those countries that are currently marginalized. History demands of them now to step up to save the planet, along with India, along with Europe, along exactly. with Africa, yeah. along with all the small states of the world, Latin America as well, Asia Pacific. Thank Absolutely. you. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you. All for the best. The world is smaller today because of improved connectivity and access to information. But also the world is getting more and more divided. People seem to be so easily opposed to each other on virtually every issue that matters, from climate to immigration, from refugees to racism. According to the UN, the majority of the world's major conflicts have a cultural component. UNESCO was founded on the belief that protecting and promoting culture is essential to achieving global peace and mutual understanding. What's the role of culture in today's world? What has UNESCO done to help promote dialogue between different civilizations? And what are the challenges it is facing in a time of rising tensions? To discuss these issues and more, I'm happy to talk with Ernesto Otane, Assistant Director General for Culture of UNESCO. Welcome to Dialogue, Mr. Tony. Uh, we know UNESCO is the only UNGC with a mandate for culture. I would like to have you talk a little bit about you know, what is the role of culture in today's world? Well, it's the, I was, as I come from the sector, I would say it's the most important, but we have a, a very large mandate at UNESCO that encompass culture, education, science, and communication information. What we see today in this changing world with uh, so many conflicts around the world, that culture 
plays a, a role not only as an enabler, but also as a, as a driver of sustainable development. And today, when we see um, that there is many countries that try to live together, to exchange experience, knowledge, culture plays the role of a glue between communities, countries and cultures, different cultures. That's why we have instruments, legal instruments that are the convention, that plays a pivotal role in, uh, in the multi-dimensions of the development of societies. And that's why we believe that today, more than ever, it plays a crucial role uh, during crisis, after crisis, and also to tackle some of the biggest issues that today we are embracing, that are climate crisis, climate change, the educational systems, and how we transfer to new generation a more sustainable world. A more sustainable world. Uh, last September, UNESCO you know, held this uh, World Conference on Cultural Policies and Sustainable Development. Uh, so this is the largest global conference you know, on culture in the last 40 years. Uh, in Mexico, of course, 150 countries unanimously adopted a declaration uh, that recognized culture as a global public good. Uh, so uh, what's the follow-up and how significant is that move? Well, as you mentioned, we waited 40 years for having all ministers of culture together in this conference, or category two conference in Mexico, in the Mondia Cult. And uh, the idea was to have a discussion around what are the gaps that we are confronted today and what are the opportunities and what are the priorities fixed by member states uh, around culture that today includes heritage, diversity, creativity, creative economy. And uh, the, the most important of this uh, meeting was the declaration that put forward like a roadmap on public policies in the culture field. And what was, uh, after two years of consultation, interregional consultation, is that today we have to focus on priorities. Three of the, f we, we defined five big uh, avenues to work. One was on digital means, the economic of culture and the importance of the economy uh, in culture, the climate crisis and how it's tackling heritage, but also uh, indigenous knowledge or building uh, cohesive societies. And what came out is this global public good as a need to be recognized in whatever new agenda will be built after the 2030 agenda. And today, we have been able, uh, with the help of our member states, to include these items not only at the UN level, but also at the G20, at the G77 plus China, at the BRICS. And we see very soon uh, in Abu Dhabi there will be this uh, COP. And for the first time, informally, we're going to have a Minister of Culture that will discuss how environment can be tackled with a very specific knowledge from the culture and heritage sectors and also in the G7. So we see that today when you are talking about culture, it's not only recognized for the first time as a common public good, but there is also the possibility to work, to have a standalone goal for whatever will be the next agenda uh, between member states. And that's the first time. And that's what we feel 
was a missing link between the agenda that we have until now and uh, the, the culture that is somehow present everywhere but not recognized as, a, as an enabler for sustainable development. Again, for sustainable development. Uh, you know, specifically for China, China joined the UNESCO in 1947. Uh, so China has been active in participating in UNESCO programs, you know, uh, educational and other you know, restoration of uh, the uh, cultural sites. So I wonder how do you see this um, you know, cooperation between China as a member of UNESCO of course, and also, you know, what, what, is, um, what can we do more to enhance the relationship, enhance China's participation? Well, you mentioned it. Uh, China has been uh, a very good partner, not only for, for, for the cultural sector, but uh, in UNESCO. Today, for, for example, the, 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 the role that uh, China can play on ed educational matters or in, in, uh, in communication information or new technology, or the ethics of artificial intelligence that was adopted two years ago in the last general conference. For us, what we see is that China has been on the verge of uh, constructing also new knowledge on preservation and safeguarding. China with some other countries are the, the one who has the largest number inscribed uh, sites and elements in the tangible and intangible uh, conventions. And somehow, what is challenging today for, for countries like China, with the dimension of China and with the population of China, is how all these inscriptions are not the final point, but the, the beginning point of the conservation issues. It means how we ensure that we tackle issues on sustainable development, not in contradiction with conservation, preservation, but enhance possibilities to to build ways of conserving that doesn't affect or, or stop some type of developments, but at the same time respecting the environment for once, uh, building so, uh, cities that introduce technologies and new developments in a sustainable way, how they control and manage those sites for not producing over-tourism, that today is one of the biggest challenges of big cities, so that uh, local communities can benefit of those inscriptions. And I believe that today the reflection that we are putting together with China is also in the two major priorities that has UNESCO defined. That it's priority Africa, and in this sense we are developing many projects in Africa with China on uh, preservation, on uh, safeguarding, or uh, also fighting uh, illicit trafficking of cultural goods. And also the other uh, big challenge is uh, gender equality. And in this sense, you have your first lady who is a champion on education for girls and women. And, uh, and that's a, a crucial issue. Overall, today in many countries, girls don't have access to education. So to continue to, to be um, inspired by this work that we do together with China can help. And at the same time, you know that we have 194 member states at UNESCO and we truly believe that all countries should be part of this of these, uh, great organization because the, all countries have a role to play, independently of how big they are or how strong they have a, a, G, a GDP. 
they should have representation, their voice heard. Today, for example, China plays a, a very important role in the Pacific. There are many seats, uh, small island developing countries, that it's counting on how China can help to solve or, or tackle some of the biggest issues that are confronted, for example, on, uh, on prevention, on climate crisis that are coming each year more and more. And uh, we believe that there is expertise. We have category two centers. We have many UNESCO chairs that are uh, with uh, huge, big uh, public universities in China. So yes, we, we truly believe that China plays a, a very strong and important role for the development of the future of our programs at UNESCO. Mm -hmm. Uh, we earlier you also talked about uh, you know today's world is not only about um, you know when we look at the, the issues you know the conflicts uh, sometimes it's politics sometimes it's economic issues, but also you know the importance again here is uh, you know dialogue understanding culture issues. Uh, then people would say, you know, what is the role of UNESCO? Um, there is a concern whether the role of UNESCO uh, somehow is being undermined because of those political competition among its members. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you know, all UN organizations, uh, you will say that they were built on, on, on political consensus. When we're talking about putting together 194 countries, it means that you have to find some common ground to build consensus around the big topics. What, what we have seen in the last year is is that sometimes some cultural issue became become in political discussions. What we have tried to do since the DG uh, Madame Azoulay has taken uh, UNESCO has, be, has been to try to put everybody together to find those consensus. And until now we have been able to do it. I hope that it will continue, but when we see new crises that are popping everywhere, we see that it's more difficult and that it's not enough only to have these uh, programs that allow us to build together. We see that dialogue is, and as I mentioned before, dialogue is the best way to solve problems that normally goes very far away in the history. What we have seen, and that's only to, to showcase how we were able to give a new opportunity to this discussion, has been, for example, what we have been able to do with intangible cultural heritage around um, countries that historically have been divided and they are coming together to present files uh, the same year together. We had the, the case of the serum uh, between North Korea and South Korea. We had the case two years ago with the, what is this, uh, the Rumba Congolese between the two Congo, uh, DC and uh, Congo Brazzaville. We have uh, around uh, Arab region countries that have together putting the, some culinary uh, elements like the couscous between countries that normally have many discussion on territories issue. And we believe that it has shown that culture allows to come together countries that have divided history. And at the end, the, 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 they are prevailing these, these this opportunity to show the world that on cultural um, elements they are capable to come together. Because, and that's what's most important, those conventions are based about how communities 
safeguard this heritage. So it's not anymore only about political decision. It's a country, who is in this case two countries, who are presenting together. But at the end, those who have to preserve it are communities that continue with tradition, that uh, transfer, transfer those knowledge to new generation. And we have been seeing um, our major success story around those sharing humanity values together. Like? Like the, the one that I described, or when we have uh, transborder inscriptions. Uh, during the committee in Riyadh in September of this year, uh, for example, for the first time, we have two, three memory sites that were inscribed. It's a, a new category that exists. One in Rwanda, from the genocide uh, site, uh, in Argentina, during the, the military power that was in the 70s and 80s, and uh, the, the buried um, during the, after the First World War from Belgium and France. And that shows that today, after some time that is passing, allow countries to come together to share a part of their history that was divisive that today they can bring together new generation, especially for having this strong text that says never again. Never again. And that's the most important. How we learn from our, our faults or how we learn from bad experience that the world has embraced. We hope that at the end, new generation will be more clever than us to ensure that uh, that this was uh, the mandate of our organization served for. Thank you, Mr. Tanes. Thank you for accepting our interview. With that, we come to the end of our discussion. Many thanks to our guests. You can also find us on the CGTN app on YouTube. I'm Xu Qingduo. Thanks for being with us. See you next time. From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world.